Hello, this is Lee, your host for tonight's Curly Question Podcast. This is a show for things with no straight answer. It's all about your well-hidden perception and biases. The things that we never t- know about that exist and play out in our everyday lives. In this episode, I'd like to question, do differences really make a difference? And today's buzzword is diversity. Many people do it, but few really practice it. Curly Questions episode 2, that's where you'll find out from our guest today. His name is Simon a Melbourne writer with dangerously fun stories and I'll give him I'll let him give a spill about his very own dangerous story. So over to you, Simon. Hi, thanks Lee. Thanks for having me in here. Yeah, well I'm a Melbourne born and raised actually and like you said I like to tell dangerously fun stories and that tends to be in science fiction, horror and comedy and uh, I use kind of the tropes of those fantastic storylines, those fantastic genres to blow up social fears. And so it's dangerous because a lot of it is more adult and the horror story is pretty creepy and sci-fi is often about the edge of technology and society, but it's fun too. So I always like to tell fun stories that are broad, audiences can really engage in it. And um, a lot of that stemmed from living with cystic fibrosis, which Mm. is a genetic disease, something you're born with, and it gives me a disability. I'm a member of the disability community. And so I've always felt, more recently I felt it's my responsibility to represent the underrepresented in my work. And it just so happens that genre work, we call sort of sci-fi horror comedy like genre work, is probably one of the easiest to bring diversity to. Because it's not about the human individual, it's about a bunch of people running away from a werewolf who wants to kill them. (laughs) So it doesn't matter what background, what creed you are, you've got to get away from that werewolf. Um, And so... That's why I kind of become quite fascinated with diversity through my life and through my work. But I also work for a company called Kinate as a communications strategist. And that came from my creative background, discovering that through things like design thinking, there's these great roles for creative people now in the corporate sector. Mm -hmm. And so diversity there in design thinking and collaboration, it's a driver. It's the power that drives good collaboration. It's the power that drives design thinking to some degree. You have to have diverse perspectives in the room to come up with innovative ideas, mm-hmm. otherwise you're just thinking about the same things you thought about over and over again. So mm. that's the core of where I come from, from diversity. Wow, that sounds really true though. You see you mentioned something about like, you need to have different ideas to come together. Yeah. So that's really the core of diversity. Tell us a bit more around, you know, what you're seeing currently in the industry, you know, so what do you yeah. think about it? So I think, I mean, I'm coming from a, and this is the thing, being aware of diversity, I think you start to get a lot more qualifiers when you speak. So, for example, I'm going to be talking from a white male perspective. (laughs) I have a disability, but I live in Melbourne. I haven't done a great deal of travel, and I've lived in Australia for a long time, so I'm coming from that perspective. But I've come from a kind of lower socioeconomic background. My parents didn't go to university, but I did. And I went to university myself. And so I think it's important to like say what my background is for people to understand what I'm going to talk about, my perspective yeah. on diversity. And so what I've seen coming up through uni and then starting my own business uh, in a creative field and running arts companies, mostly in screen, and now it's in books and theatre and virtual reality, what I've noticed is diversity is definitely being talked about a lot more. Like you've said, bandwagon, and I think that's interesting because it is a buzzword to use diversity. And it's funny because stories are also a buzzword at the moment, storytelling. That's true. Which is really weird for me as a storyteller my whole life. But when I was thinking about you using the word bandwagon, oh, now we'll get to your question in a moment of you know what's happening at the moment, but those two things as um, bandwagons or like buzzwords they are and they aren't, just in that everything's so cyclical. Society's so cyclical, or cyclical. And um, storytelling, 
is popular at the moment, but it's been popular forever. We've been telling stories since the fire, um, mm. sitting around a campfire telling stories to communicate how to run away from danger, how to find the best berries, how to... Storytelling's yeah. been a basic part of what we do. It's probably just more that for a period of time we'll focus on something else. And storytelling's come back around as maybe we weren't telling as many stories and getting our information across. Maybe I've come from an advertising background. A lot of my work's from advertising and marketing. <laughs> maybe we were focused too much on facts and figures for a little while. And so storytelling became popular. Maybe that's why we're seeing the nasty dark side of alternative facts popping up. And so diversity, again, is probably something that's always been around. It's uh, in some of the stuff we'll talk about later, like the Silk Road through Asia was about all these different cultures coming together to go travel and share and trade. Wherever there's been trade, there's always been more diversity in those spaces, in those ports, because mm. it's people coming together to make money. Very important. Or find food. Very important to humanity. So these things are buzzwords, but uh, yeah, it's cyclical. Like, we'll probably swing back and forth, back and forth. But what I've seen in terms of diversity is I think in Australia, the rise of things like design thinking, human-centered design, user experience, these are all based on underlying person-centered focus. How do you go to the humans who might be buying something or experiencing something, ask them directly how they should be using and experiencing that thing rather than coming up with it on your own. That's where I think diversity started to come up because those methods, those methodologies that have yeah. been developed come out of business schools and all sorts, yeah. sorts of places. They emphasize the strength of diversity. That seems to have come around at a really good time because in Australia and probably a lot of the Western world, we're talking a lot about how to be more diverse, mm -hmm. how to confront issues when wars pop up. Mm -hmm. That probably pushes the diversity story because suddenly refugees are flowing through the country a hell of a lot more. Yeah. We have to start to understand better how we can embrace diversity. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably why diversity is such a big word at the moment in my circles, yeah. um, in the kind of narrower field of design thinking and business yeah. and creativity and agency land. Mm -hmm. We're talking about diversity because it's powering what we think is the best way to come up with products, ideas, services. Mm -hmm. So in a, from a capitalist point of view, diversity is actually important now, which is nice. Yeah. Um, and then that can't help but probably get stronger because of the echoes of things like refugee crises going around mm -hmm. the world. So that's what I think is happening at the moment from my point of view. Mm -hmm. And diversity is also popping up a lot in the arts, so my background's from the arts mm -hmm. too. This probably isn't cyclical because for the longest time it's been so heavily dominated by white straight, able-bodied men, mm. which I've got stats here to talk about, which we can talk about later. Um, in film and theatre, for so long, it's been just a really dominant part of mm. what's on screen. Yep. It's not the dominant part of... It's, it's not reflective of the percentages of our population. Yep. And so we're looking at how to fix that too. Mm -hmm. Great. I think you spoke about, you know, the human-centred design, design mm. thinking. I mean, I've been part of it as well. Yeah. So my background is product management yep. in technology company, and recently I joined Origin, so we're really big on that. Yeah. I have conversation with many people when they talk about diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. and in design and everything. But as a product manager, I'm quite cynical. Can we truly be inclusive? Can we be truly targeting all customer segments mm. and sort of still be able to be to make money, I think, mm. sort of trying to find the nice sweet point between design yeah. and business, the intersection design and business, yeah. what really makes sense. So I'd love to get your thoughts around inclusion and, and diversity in the business. Well, I'm curious to ask you, is the goal of inclusion and diversity at Origin, what you're doing, to get everyone? No, actually it's not for Origin, it's more for like, whenever I work in the company, I'll be like, do you really want to get everyone? Yeah. Because <laughs> I would say, when you're looking at it, like diversity, of course, like one of my favorite, when I was taught human-centered design at a company called Huddle, they, the two trainers there, Christina and Phil, were really good at, they would always say, 
it depends. Whenever they were asked a question, it was always followed by, it depends, because it's a complex thing we're talking about, and complexity always requires an it depends answer. When you're talking about diversity and coming up with something, it does depend on the context, always the context. And so if you're trying to reach out, if you're trying to make a product, say, that's going out to everyone, Mm -hmm. and you're using design tools, everyone is probably a bad place to start. You have to narrow it down. You have to use constraints. Yeah. There's this idea in the arts, which I'm bringing to a lot of this work, of universality. Is there a universal story? Can you tell a story that appeals to everybody? Hmm. And sometimes it's very hard to do that if you say, I'm going to write a story that appeals to everybody. Yeah. And in marketing too, which takes on a lot of these principles of design, it's a bad to say that my target market is everyone, because that's impossible, because everyone's too different for everyone to be a... Uh, there's no such thing as a homogenous everyone group. And so when you're developing a product, you can almost get to everyone better by being specific. Mm. In marketing, if you have a very clear target, then the sharper and clearer that target, the more likely you are to reach that group of people and then spread your message to more people. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same with design. If you're developing a product like you work in, you kind of want to say, how do we develop a product that helps a specific group of people? If we can solve that problem, then we can start branching out to more and more people. So you probably can reach everyone eventually, but you have to start somewhere more constrained. Like Facebook or Uber. They are now solving it for, well, not everyone, but a lot more people than maybe what they started with. I mean, Facebook was about college, but it branched out. So I think everyone comes later, mm-hmm. and as close to everyone as you can too, because again, with diversity, we're talking about the fact that Facebook and Uber are mostly in developed countries, mm-hmm. not necessarily developing countries. Yep. So they're not reaching everyone. That's true. Sounds like diversity and inclusion comes with a bit of focus at times. Yeah. And not just, you know, being generalized because in the end we want to have everybody, but in the end we have no one. Diversity and inclusion in the process of design can include a lot more people. I think that's the important part. Even if you decide to target a specific group, even if you decide to target white men, Mm -hmm. white able-bodied men, it's a smart idea to get people who aren't that into a group of design considerations. Because if you just get the white men in the group, they're just going to think of the same things over and over and over again. And particularly with innovative product design, this is the thing, it doesn't always have to be innovative when you're coming up with things, but let's say you are trying to come up with something that no one else has really come up with before Mm -hmm. for a group of white men. White men aren't necessarily the best people to go to because they're just going to tell you everything they already know. They're not going to tell you anything new. What can you learn from Middle Eastern culture? What can you learn from a disability culture? What can you learn from a gay culture, a women's culture? That when brought in, some sort of, you never know where the insight will come from. That's the exciting part of design thinking, or HCD, or even UX. All these people come, they hear the story of the white man they're trying to help, God save them, and they (laughs) say to themselves, well, you know what, from my perspective, even though it's this thing, I actually find this thing, and if that's well moderated, then someone says, you know, that's a fascinating idea. What if we did that? for this group. That's kind of the core of bringing diversity in, is that you bring new ideas because new perspectives will literally have a new perspective on a problem. Yeah, that sounds really true. We're trying to sort of bring that through as well in different companies that we work with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think we spoke about having some of your interesting facts or maybe stories about diversity. I mean, I'm mindful that because we went down the route about my career, you know, about product yeah. management and human-centered design. I'm just sort of mindful that you have a lot more to share. Well, it makes me think of, I mean, being creative and coming up with new stories and putting on stories that people see. Writing a book, putting on a theatre show, or maybe putting together a screen production. That is like product, uh, product design in a lot of ways. Um, I've always found it actually quite difficult to use the problem-solution model for that because it isn't... Like, the problem is I want to go see something or I want to feel an emotion. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's not really a solution to say, well, a film. Because the film's the solution, but then what's the thing within it? So it's a funny little, that yeah. doesn't quite work. But I'd like to try and bring those theories into what we do to make our content. Mm-hmm. So I might give a bit of background, actually. The way I work is quite different to a lot of other arts practitioners I've met. And it's something I'm trying to push with some of my other friends who mm-hmm. are familiar with the person-centred mm-hmm. approach, with design approach. I'm trying to bring that into the arts. Yeah. And so the traditional approach, much like product design, was, I have a great idea for a film. Mm. I'm going to go write that film and spend an, a year writing the film in between my jobs and then I'm going to finish it great script's ready now I'm going to go put together a crew I'm going to put together a cast I'm going to spend a year and a half making it probably more because they've got to develop it in Australia in particular so let's say three years made the film film's ready I'm going to put it out to market oh no one wants it I never asked once what the audience wanted to see does anyone actually want to see this film that's the way it's done at the moment particularly in Australia and as a result we see a lot of flops you see a lot of flops when you don't talk to the market and ask them what they want and why they want it, or whether they even want the story you've come up with. And I see that, particularly in film, I've always focused on film or theatre, anything where you end up having up to 100 people on a piece that's going to go out into the world, if that flops and it doesn't make its money back, that's really bad. It's bad not just for you know the screen industry in Australia to have all these flops, which a lot of people, they think of Australian screen, they think of poor content. They think oh. of poor quality. So there's good stuff, but that tends to be a prevailing attitude. So it's no good for that. It's also no good for the crew. Mm-hmm. The producers in particular who lose all their money and they don't, you know, they struggle to put the next film up and no one necessarily can keep working within that group of cohorts, so they have mm-hmm. to go find another production that makes it hard for them to be stable. It's not so bad in, say, you're writing a book or you're making a piece of hung-on-the-wall art. Mm-hmm. If no one comes, it's just you that suffers. But So I've been trying to take the design principles and say, you have an idea, you have a concept, it's not even written yet. It's just a paragraph of an idea. Take that to the audience straight away. Don't wait three years to find out if that idea is any good. Go straight to a group of people and say, hey, what do you think of this idea? Tell me about it. And in that point, that's where diversity needs to come through. Because mm-hmm. from the design point of view, you should be getting a really broad collection of perspectives on your idea. Not necessarily to change it. I mean, you should be open to change if you're going to do it properly. But just to see who likes it. Why do they like it? Why don't they like it? Is there a particular subgroup of people that you never thought about but really relates to that idea? Is there a particular group of people that hate that idea? Hmm. Why do they hate that idea? Start to learn about your paragraph of a concept straight away and then change it. You're going to redraft, you're going to make changes anyway. It's so easy to start getting that feedback and incorporating it in a smart, intelligent way. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been talking about a lot with other people. And there's another person in Melbourne called Kylie Eddy who does lean filmmaking courses. And she's tried to take lean methodologies, and she's very much with this perspective as well, but just applying different methods to how to do that, of yeah, coming up with an idea and then just iterate it, reiterate it over and over and over again, which they do at the most basic level of just reiterating paragraph synopses then doing storyboards on post-it notes, but taking those to audiences over and over again and saying, hey, five people, here's my film, but just as five post-it notes. Mm -hmm. Do you get where I'm going? Do you get what this is about? You get incredible feedback from just that. She always has to get over everyone's skepticism of that because everyone's so used to the old-fashioned way. But she shows people a three-panel storyboard Mm -hmm. and how much feedback you can get from that and how much you can see that your idea isn't being communicated properly. Because art is just about trying to make someone feel something Mm -hmm. by communicating through a story. If it's a story-based thing, then you are just having a character who has a challenge in front of them, has to overcome that challenge, and in so doing, changes, Mm -hmm. learns something. 
So if you just put that basic premise down on three pieces of post-it, you can see whether you were doing that right, communicating that right or wrong, and it starts to immediately give you a sharper, clearer feedback that, if you don't talk to anyone, takes years to start to learn, but you get it straight away. And so we're taking that approach in the arts and trying to get more and more creatives around me familiar with design thinking and how that works and bringing those practices in. Wow, there's a lot of richness in what you said, like applying <laughs> lean thinking to, to design, I mean to films. Yeah. I was, I was just scribbling on my board, uh, on my book as you were talking, I'm like, oh, I haven't quite think about it that way around applying the same principle mm. to a new industry. Like, like filmmaking, I'm like, oh, I never thought about it this way. Yeah. It feels like diversity is increasingly more like a mindset, you know, design mm. thinking, human-centered design, diversity is really like a mindset. Yeah. They sort of prime us to think about, not just for ourselves, but also for others, mm -hmm. and how can we be open with feedback? Because you mentioned something mm -hmm. about iterative, mm -hmm. like how do we sort of test it out quickly, get feedback, it's about, you know, how do we get open with feeling? Yeah. How do we be open with criticism, yes. and yet be able to sort of take it? in a positive manner. Yeah, that's that's very hard and say with lean filmmaking, I've done some of the courses with, in, with Kylie Eddy. Mm -hmm. And part of her like early stage is to learn how to take that criticism. It's funny because if you're in the arts, you have to know how to take criticism because it's important. You have to learn how to take feedback because it's important how you change things. But we're not good at it. And I watch those courses go through and I watch people really struggle to get the feedback because I think they're so used to... Um, Pixar talk about this too in Ed, Ed Catmull's book about creativity, he Creativity Inc. He talks about how you also have to be careful with feedback and criticism. There's a kind of incubation stage, he calls it, where if someone attacks you while you're still a little egg, you'll fall apart, you won't develop properly. And so you do have to time when you get feedback and criticism. Or another way I look at that is to take a concept that's like at the bottom of your drawer so you don't feel passionate about it. Most artists have this one idea they've always wanted to make don't use that one. Don't use that one for this approach. Keep that one off to the side, do that how you want to do it. But take one of the ideas that you just like lightly have thought about over time. It's only been lightly seared, it hasn't really been cooked through yet. <laughs> take that idea so you're not in love with it, you're not passionate about it and falling in love with it, so that you can let it fall apart. Because if you've ever done design thinking processes, you have to be cool with tearing things to pieces. And so you have to have a concept you're okay to break apart to discover why it's wrong. The funny thing is if you do that with a concept you don't love, the one you love will probably start to be able to be opened up. So you do have to be cautious, I think, with feedback and criticism, but I think being more communicative and being more in touch with how you emote, how you respond to feedback, how you feel when you're getting criticism is an important part of not just the feedback process, but diversity. Like it touches, one of my favorite subjects to talk about is fear. I love fear. Fear is yeah. fascinating and we don't talk about it a lot. Fear is tied to death. Like at its core, fear is, you know, avoiding things that kill you. And that makes sense because we're also not great about talking about death in Australia anyway. But fear is probably one of the things that stops diversity from coming through because we have social fears. Fear of a snake, a spider, that makes sense. Fear of being hit by a car, that's built into us. That's a phylogenetic mm -hmm. or phylogenic fear that we've had embedded into our genes since before we were humans, when we were other creatures and learned that things that would kill us are bad. So that's a, that's a, that's a rational, that's, that's like a deep embedded fear. But we have social fears, and from what I've read about fear, because it fascinates me, the amygdala is a part of our brain that processes fear and tells us when we're afraid of something. The same things that make us afraid of spiders and trigger the amygdala, the amygdala triggers when we're afraid of social things, like the other, like someone of a different colour to us. If you've been brought up to be afraid of someone who's a different colour, a, a different group, mm -hmm. that same part of your brain fires off, but it's learned. 
It's not mm. built into you. It's something you've learned just from being told over and over again that you should be afraid of that. Mm. So the same parts of our brain fire. You can also unlearn that. That's sort of what I call a social fear can be unlearned. And so if you are afraid of another group, diversity is going to be very hard for you. And one of the antidotes to fear is familiarity. The more you're shown something, the more you become familiar with it, the more you start to get to know it, mm -hmm. the less you fear it. And so in a study, I can't find the details, I'll, I'll maybe send them to you to post up online, but there was a study of fear where they would be shown the faces of black people and white people mm -hmm. that they'd never met, so they were strangers. And those who had unconscious bias against another race, would their brains would trigger, the amygdala would trigger, they would be afraid of the people, particularly, mm -hmm. say, if they're white and they're afraid of black people, they're afraid of black people. So they would respond with fear to that. However, if they showed black and white faces of people they knew, then it wouldn't trigger at all, completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. So familiarity is a way to get yourself comfortable with fear, and it's an antidote for it, which I guess is why some people talk about love as an antidote <laughs> to fear, and it's just like, at a simpler level, it's just knowing someone, knowing a group of people, and it, you see that yeah, just like, that's why cities can be quite useful, because in a densely populated city like Melbourne that has a lot of people from different backgrounds, that's why everyone says that you know Melbourne's a greeny, lefty paradise, but probably most people sitting in the city have just been exposed to more people of different cultures, mm -hmm. and so they're not afraid of them. But then you get those people who grew up in small towns where all they saw were white people, and maybe there were some pretty negative feedback about what those other cultures were like in that small town, then they have the fear response when they see people from another background. So the way to get that out of people is to get them familiar. It even happened with someone I know who grew up in one of the widest suburbs in Melbourne, like statistically the widest suburb of Melbourne. So not a small town, just in Melbourne, but on the edges. She came into the city, she started living in Footscray, which is one of the most diverse backgrounds. And she like wasn't afraid of those people. She just was so not used to it that she noticed it. Now, I knew that I grew up in Dandenong, which is pretty much like uh, Footscray, very diverse. So I didn't even notice it. I'm so used to it that I didn't even notice it. And just having someone who grew up in those two different things, otherwise quite similar to my background, it really makes you kind of see that response, like that's a kind of see the theory in practice. And luckily she hadn't been given these constant cultural lessons that she should be afraid of those people, but she just was like, wow, I'm not used to this. It's unfamiliar to me. And so it's really fascinating to see that. And so diversity is important, I think, to mm -hmm. get new perspectives, to help us understand one another, to minimise tension. Fear is going to create tension. Tension is going to create hostility, potentially. So diversity, bringing more familiarity to differences and others helps us reduce that tension. Mm -hmm. I had the same experience that you're seeing there, a person who just who's very used to the white suburbs, moves to first grade and yeah. sort of got a bit of a shock. Yeah. Um, there was one day that I decided to go to Hampton after work yeah. and I went on the train. I'm like, wow, there's all white people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, 90% of commuters on the train to yeah. Hampton were all white. Right. And I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm a bit strange. <laughs> yeah, did you feel more, you stood out more? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, I mean, the inverse is felt, right? Even for yeah. Asian coming to a, a trend field of white people, I'm like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think that with population growing, with new people coming in from different races, mm. sometimes we might not gel that well. And I'm really mm. keen to understand, you know, from your perspective, mm -hmm. how can we grow awareness in some ways? Certain self-awareness, just to be aware of diversity and, you know, how we actually manage that in the best manner? Yeah. It's really hard. And you see it so often because there has to be a willingness to want to. That's the first part. Like you and I talking about this, we're, gonna, we're preaching to each other, we're preaching to a choir. We're both fairly aware of what diversity means. The big question is how do you get someone who did grow up in a small town, who was never exposed to any of that, and has an active disliking of diversity to start to embrace diversity? Now that, 
honestly is beyond me. I don't have an answer for that question. I look at what other people are doing. There are lots of different approaches people talk about. There's a chap whose name I cannot remember, and he's kind of come up over in the States in opposition to the Trump process. He's been running these television shows where he reaches out to Trump supporters. He's an African-American man. He's a black man himself. Great speaker. I think he was a journalist for a while. He's now started this show where he goes to Trump-type places, like Trump strongholds, and talks to Trump voters and tries to get them to understand each other. It does, he doesn't even try to change their perspective. He just wants to understand their perspective. Wow. So they get listened to and, and they start to hear from one another. I think if you don't want to embrace diversity, but then suddenly you talk to someone who is diverse and it's done in a non-tense way, I think removing tension is really important because it makes people feel more at ease and you have to make them feel at ease even if you don't like that person's perspective. If you want to change or at least influence the perspective in some way or bring your perspective in front of them, well, you have to ease tension, otherwise you're just entering a loaded situation. So watching, I mean, you know, Queer Eye for the Straight, uh, Queer Eye now, it's just called, sorry. That's a great example of probably something that's really doing a good job of reaching out because from a marketing point of view, it could be preaching to the choir because it's just like anyone who is gay would love it, anyone who is left-leaning would love it. But they go into these culturally right-wing places. Mm-hmm. I think that's all set in Atlanta, which is quite a... Is it Atlanta? No, it's not Atlanta. Georgia. Oh. Sorry, it's all in Georgia. That, and they deliberately put it down there because it's a southern state. And so it's going to increase the chances that people living in that southern state will watch the show because at least it's representing them. They'll be more interested in it. So you have to put yourself in the space of the other perspective and then bring those perspectives in in a non-tense way. Now, something that's interesting that makes me think is Nanette which is a stand-up comedy show by Hannah Gadsby, which is doing the rounds at the moment, very popular. She's an Australian comedian who'd been doing stand-up for, I think, 10 years before she did this show, and she's a lesbian, Mm. and she talks about, in this show, her desire to quit comedy because she realised that comedy is self-deprecation, self-deprecation is taking yourself down, and she wanted to stop doing that because it's almost like an abusive relationship she was engaged in with herself. It's a really powerful show because it goes from a stand-up show into something very different, and you kind of have to watch it. I don't want to spoil it. It's worth watching, (laughs) and it's incredible. But in that, Hannah talks about wanting to use anger and tension. She talks about tension a lot. She talks about the fact that comedy creates a tension by having a setup in the joke, the structure of the joke, and then relieving that tension by making a punchline come through. And that's, like I talk about dangerous fun, comedy is often talked about as danger. Not a lot of danger, it's not scary, but you create tension by saying something taboo, by making an observation that you're kind of half aware of, kind of bring something up as a tense thing, and then you laugh about it and you feel relief. It's about tension relief, tension relief. That's what the laugh response is. You get into this anthropological discussion of like our teeth being bared like monkeys do. And it's kind of that response, the noise. So tension can also be very useful and powerful if it's used the right way. And so in Nanette, she talks about probably wanting to relieve tension. Actually, she ends up probably saying the same thing I just said, and I probably got it from her. She ends up wanting to not keep creating tension, although she does use anger, her own anger, to help tell her story because she is herself very angry. Hmm. You have to watch it to understand why. You really do have to watch it. It's really incredible. I kept hearing it was really incredible, so I was like, oh, I don't know. Then you start watching it and you're not sure because the stand-up kind of drifts and the... The transition is slow, so keep stick with mm-hmm. it. Because I saw a few people on Twitter go, oh, I got tired of it after the first 10 minutes. You're missing so much. Mm-hmm. But she wants to relieve tension, it sounds like, as well, out of the comedy she's doing. I think that's what people are starting to try and explore, is how do I go into a space that's very loaded and dangerous mm-hmm. and relieve that tension so that maybe I can then start to inject new perspectives in. And for those people who are dangerous to us, maybe I can start to chip away at the edges of that, start to get people to see those different perspectives mm-hmm 
and through that diverse collection of perspectives make some change. But I am not an expert on that. I am just recounting to you stories <laughs> of other people who are doing a better job of it. <laughs> Dangerous stories, in fact. I think I like pointing around, you know, how... Actually, I, I find it very interesting, like, the arts here in, in Melbourne mm-hmm. and comedy actually give us a different spin in life. Mm-hmm. It does give us a bit of perspective. I never quite thought yeah. of comedy as a way of learning new stuff yep. or unlearning old stuff. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, it's just comedy. It's just a bunch of jokes. But actually, the jokes are quite loaded Yeah. in a way that it makes us see things differently. Like, it starts with a punchline or, you know, you sort of start with tension, like you mentioned. Yeah. And then deliver it with a punchline, which yeah. I thought was really great. Any experiences where you've unlearned something from comedy? Because that's really interesting. I think, I can't remember exactly because I, there was an, I think it was a comedy festival recently. Yeah. Yeah. There was a Malaysian who came to Melbourne. I think he was making a joke about Asians in Melbourne. Yeah. I can't remember what exactly it was, but it was just funny. Like, she said about how we behave yeah. in, in, in the Western culture. I'm like, oh, that's quite true that we behave. We still behave like we're back home. We want to stick around with our Asian community. We want to eat our laksa. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, true. And then the next day, I'm like, I'm not eating laksa. <laughs> it might be change, yeah. <laughs> like, go yep. eat fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see another perspective food-wise. <laughs> yeah, exactly, food-wise. <laughs> it's funny, food and comedy are probably really good levelers when it comes to mixing up cultures. Yeah. We're happy to eat lots of different foods. And some of the people who hate other cultures will still happily eat their food, <laughs> just hate the person. So comedy, it's funny, comedy often is kind of misread as not that powerful, not that useful, sometimes. Although throughout history, there's been that culture of comedy in particular is about talking truth to power, but in a veiled way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of comedians will talk about the old court jesters in medieval Europe. The jester was this person who was given a mandate by the king or the queen to make fun of everything, make fun of society. And so that jester could then go around making jokes to all the most powerful people in the world, who, if he weren't or she weren't a jester, would have their head cut off. But they were allowed to go make jokes and, 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 you know, say the the most, like, woof, woof, dearie me, you can't say that sort of stuff. And the court would laugh, ha, 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 because the king would laugh or the queen would laugh. To a point, I'm sure people still got their heads cut off. When they went too far, there's always a line. But that tradition of talking truth to power is what comedy is often about. Comedy can be very simple, but it's still talking about social truths, like class. There's a really good podcast about class in Australia on ABC, ABC Listen. And it was making this really good point. Well, some people say that there's no class in Australia. We got rid of that. Now, I disagree, and this podcast makes the point that there is class in Australia. And a really great barometer is comedy. If you've ever watched Kath and Kim or Upper Middle Bogan, two Australian comedy series, if you understand the jokes in that, then you understand class. And class must exist. Because both of those shows are about, they're really heavily about class in Australia. Kath and Kim are about two really suburban white women who mispronounce things, haven't, <laughs> they love like trashy culture and they kind of misunderstand things. But then there's these two other characters, they love to go to the shopping centre, they love to go to Fountain Lakes, which is where I used to grow up, so it was always funny to see that, where I grew up. But when they go to Fountain Lakes, there's these two women who run like an upper class store called Prue and True. And they have very different voices. Kath and Kim's very like, oh, hello, look at me. Yeah, I'll come out from the suburbs. Nice to meet you. My name's Kath. My name's Kim. But Prue and True talk like Prue and True. They talk with an upper-accented, like with the Malcolm Turnbull, oh, hello, Prue. How are you going, True? Oh, what do you know? I don't know. What do you know? They have that accent. And they talk about... Kath and Kim will talk about uh, how you've got to be bedazzling yourself to look cool these days, uh, the ideas of what monogamy means. You don't want monogamy, you want mahogany. They'll mix up their words there. Prue and True talk about their husbands cheating on one another because they're all stockbrokers going bankrupt. They talk about those things. If you understand the jokes that are loaded in that, then you understand the class because they're both very different classes of Australian. So there is class. I think when you have different culture, you always sort of, not just different culture, but different class. Yeah. 
it's funny because recently um, I find it very hard to pronounce some names, yep. Australian names. Yeah. And my colleague who's been in Australia for like maybe 20 years, yep. he's Malaysian, he will laugh at my accent, he will laugh at the way I pronounce someone's name. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he can pick it up because he is Malaysian living in Australia. Yeah. But you can't, an Australian living here for all his life will not be able to pick it up that I make a humor out of it. Mm. And I think on that note about watching documentaries, comedy that's sort of been produced somewhere else or yeah. with different class, yeah. like a lot of people laugh at Ellen DeGeneres' show. Yep. I totally can't get it at all. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think? What? What is... Uh, do you just dislike it or do you not get the joke? I like, don't get the joke. She thought about something and then you hear the audience in the back laughing. I'm like, yeah. what was the joke? Yeah. What, did I, what did I just miss? Did I not understand American English? Or <laughs> <laughs> why do you think that is? Do you have any ideas, any insights on why you don't understand it? Or what are you missing that the perspective of the audience is getting? I suspect it, they could, have, it could be the accent as well because I wasn't actively listening and I tried once to listen. I'm like, this is a good show. Everybody says it's great. It must be good. And I have very high expectations of it. Yeah. And I'm like, what did you just say? Why is everybody laughing? Like, I can't get it. I'm like, I think the yeah. expectations might be a key there. Because yes. Ellen's show, it's a daily show. I mean, not to be disparaging, but it's aimed at kind of mums, kind of Midwestern mums. And the comedy's not edgy. Sometimes it is, but it's not an edgy comedy. Mm. It's like a light, morning, uh, middle of the day show comedy. Yeah. And so having high expectations might have been why it wasn't that funny to you because yeah. I find that that colours what you get as a result as well yeah. like that's why with Nanette I'm trying not to talk it up too much because <laughs> like some it's people true. go stop telling me that thing's great I'm not going to see it I'm like that too sometimes <laughs> stop telling me that thing's great and then like two years later you watch and go yeah alright yeah it's pretty good yeah fine fine it's interesting though learning learning about like you not understanding how to pronounce a word or a name one thing I found looking at fear and how we learn and unlearn fear is that we also learn and unlearn language. So built into us is the ability to understand how to speak. That's built into us just like a fear of spiders. We get how to speak mm-hmm. and how to hear one another talking. Mm-hmm. What we don't have built into us is how to write and read, how to read and write. Okay. That's something we have to learn. It's not built into our genes just yet. And so it takes you years and years and years to master reading and writing in one language, mm-hmm. let alone multiple. And we all know that if you don't learn young, the kind of there's a part of your brain that's really good at learning and being squishy closes up yeah. as you get older so it becomes harder to understand language mm-hmm. and so like you learning other languages essentially you're learning different pronunciation of a collection of letters that when you saw on a page in your home where you from where you came from in yeah. Malaysia it was pronounced differently so you're yeah. having to learn that yeah and the ability to learn those things, I think, is really important to our future, but we're coming back to diversity. Mm-hmm. I think we struggle with diversity because like, our culture is... A, I think our biggest next step as a human species is to learn how to work together, how to collaborate, and deal with diversity better. I think that's our evolutionary next step. And it comes from being just wild tribes that then learnt to um, have an agrarian culture, and that let us sort of know more things and specialise within areas because you don't have to do as much. And then agrarian cultures became cities. Cities allowed us to bring more things together and suddenly we had doctors who were specialising in neurosurgery and like the most advanced things. I think our next focus area needs to be on diversity mm. and collaboration. I think that's why things like design thinking are popping up because living in a city, and these cities are getting bigger and bigger, there's the idea of Dunbar's number. Mm. Dunbar's number, is, he's a social psychologist who theorised that the number of people we can maintain a stable social relationship with is about 150. So he said, people that you would feel comfortable if you just bumped into the street and they said, let's go get a drink, you'd be okay with that. Be like, yeah, I can do that. About 150. It's actually between 
100 to 250, depending on the person. And I think we need to make that number go up. I think our future is making that number go up. Because if you live in a city of millions, but you can only maintain a stable relationship with 150, that's going to limit your ability to have new perspectives, it's going to limit your ability to get to know people. And we're seeing that over and over again around the world. Mm -hmm. I think our future is increasing that number. And the number has, interestingly, increased in psychology. In subsequent examinations, there's two um, researchers called Bernard and Kilworth, and they repeated the studies over time and actually showed the number to be about 230 to 290, so higher, wow. which made me happy because I think we have to increase the number of people we can get to know, and we're using technology to aid us in that. I think social media is an example of us wanting to reach out further than just our physical location. Now we can talk to people around the world. Maybe our number is higher if you start to look at and readjust what social connection means. Mm -hmm. I always get into arguments with older people who say that because I grew up playing video games and I played with people from other places that I never met, they're not my friends. <laughs> but they absolutely were my friends. By my definition of friendship. My definition of friendship is someone who knows the deeper details of who I am. We talk about girlfriends, boyfriends, breakups, parents, fights. The intimate stuff. Mm -hmm. There was intimacy there. Never saw their face. Mm -hmm. Never spoke to them physically. But knew enough about their lives, more than what people around me in my own city knew. So they were absolutely my friends. And so we're starting to have friendships that aren't limited by our physical location, um, which we started doing with letters, and now we're doing it with the internet. So I think for diversity and the, all the positives that flow out of diversity to start to come, we have to start getting better at knowing how to connect with one another. Mm -hmm. So there's less tension in cities, less tension in countries, less tension in the world. Feel like that's our evolutionary next step and we can learn to we know we can learn to do that yeah we can learn to be more diverse we can learn to be more comfortable with mm -hmm. different perspectives and it turns out my skill something i'm good at i've been learning so i've been getting a bit of um mentorship from someone in a disability leadership mm -hmm. space and she's been drawing out like what are you good at what are you what's the strength of yours in particular christina ryan's her name she's been trying to find out if there's particular strengths to having a disability that aren't necessarily being paid attention to but could be used to help with leadership and help with society and we've been discovering that i'm good at being uncomfortable i'm good at being on the edge i'm good at risk risk-taking behaviors Wow. In a good way, not a bad way. Yeah. Like, I ran my own businesses. That's yeah. super risky. I didn't have a full-time job. I didn't have a wage. I'm comfortable having risks in my life. And I know why, too. Compared to dying, running a business is not a big deal. But I was born with a life expectancy of 20. Oh, dear. Now I'm 33 now. Yeah. But I've watched technology change and shift mm -hmm. and influence how my life is treated. And my life has gone longer. But I did have this awareness that dying young, well, damn, man, I've got to get as much done as I can before I pop off. And so I take way more risks because running a business that failed is nothing compared to dying. So as long as I can get as much done in that space, cool, I'll try and get as much as I can done, take risks because to hell with them, they're not that risky to me. Yeah. So that's made me good mm -hmm. at learning. I've learned over time to be good at risky things, diversity, because diversity makes us feel uncomfortable because it's unfamiliar. Yeah. So I'm used to being in unfamiliar spaces and that mm -hmm. comfortableness and ease of becoming more familiar has reduced my fear yeah. and made me more comfortable with diversity. So I can teach people about diversity. That's a skill that someone maybe from a disability background or from an underrepresented group who's always felt the tension of being maybe not fitting in, not belonging, going to Hampton and finding that 90% of the people on the train are white. <laughs> that kind of gives you a different perspective that might help us, might aid us in bringing more diversity. Wow, cool. Sounds like we unpacked quite a fair bit on diversity. 
I'm just a bit mindful about time. So, um, is there any last call in terms of diversity that you want to talk about? Just unpack it like quickly. You know, do you have any particular points? I think you're right, and that the hardest thing is how do we get people who aren't interested in diversity to be interested? That's probably the biggest challenge, and I don't have the answers to that. It's always good to end on a question: How do we do that? How do we get people in our country? Let's put a constraint on it. How do we get people in Australia who are afraid of diversity to start to see it as a good thing? They're afraid of multiculturalism. Why? How do we understand that better? And I just wanted to—we didn't get to it, but I learned a beautiful thing of diversity through Yo-Yo Ma, who's a very famous cellist, internationally famous cellist, and he started something called the Silk Road Collective, and it was all these different musicians, deliberately from different social backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, and he brought them together, and they would make music, but they would also then bring in education programs and people from all around, mostly Europe and Asia, bring them together to start to learn how their different perspectives on music create new music. And he did that because he learned about the edge effect, which is a biological effect that happens when two very different natural habitats come together. Like, say, the edge of a wood, say, the edge of a forest comes straight onto grassland. At that border,、mm-hmm. there's a hugely much higher increase in the biodiversity. Way more animal types, way more plants,、yeah. all thriving and being very different in how they grow.、And、new species come from those in particular.、Mm-hmm. And he thought, well, if that happens in nature, where animals anyway, let's see what bringing different cultures does. And it's just resulted in these incredible responses, this incredible work of art. And diversity is really important in those little stories of how it brings things forward and moves them forward.、So、I just think I just want to bring that up because it's a beautiful example of deliberately using diversity、mm-hmm. to make something different happen and make something more beautiful happen.、Mm. And、um, Just another little. While I was reading those sorts of studies, there was was taken off on a side note of a group of researchers who are in a completely different field. So art and creativity, we might say diversity offshore. Okay, off in that kind of proofy right brain field of of art. Sure, diversity makes sense in hard science, hard scientific research.、Mm-hmm. Someone, I'll I'll send the details for you to share with people. They did a study that looked at research that got cited. So if you get cited in other research, it's probably a good indicator that your research is good.、Hmm. You're more successful、yeah. because your research got cited. Those whose research teams were more diverse culturally got cited way more often.、Hmm. And it didn't matter how homogenous, like if a homogenous group, so a group of say all Chinese researchers or all American Anglo、mm-hmm. researchers, all Indian researchers,、mm-hmm. all of them, regardless of what background, were less cited than more diverse backgrounds. More diverse researchers coming together and coming with different perspectives.、Mm-hmm. Seem to get better research from a citation point of view.、Wow. So from both sides of like the softest、mm-hmm. artsy side of it, you might want to say soft, but I think、yes. you know being creative is hard.、Mm-hmm. And then like this hard science background, diversity gets better results. So it's important. I guess the next time, if I, if you or I start a business, we need to find different people from different backgrounds. Yeah, go out of your way.、Yeah. Go out of your way. Do it. That's、yeah. the way to do it too.、Yeah. That's the funny thing. Everyone's like, how do you do it? You literally just go out of your way to meet more people. I went through that myself. There's this little, just really quick story before we finish. My website for an old company. I had a video company. I went out of my way for a cultural diversity. I went and took photos of some of my cast and crew, all in like science gear. It was like a science theme. It was good fun. We had a photo shoot day. Put them all up on the website. Had like six people on the page, all dressed in science outfits.、Mm-hmm. Didn't realize until a year in that they were all men. Oh wow! <laughs> Didn't even realize it. Did not even see it. So my unconscious bias was absolutely there, and I was shocked. I was shocked to see it because I'd gone out of my way. To bring in this like multicultural thing,、mm-hmm. completely missed the women thing. So I took all the pages down,、yeah. looked at my list, and the solution is to just go out of your way to find people from a different background. So I said, you know what? 
I need to meet more women. I need to go out there and meet more women in creative fields who are good and who are talented and who have merit because fuck the merit. The merit thing's garbage. Go meet people from different backgrounds. There are people who are really talented and I deliberately met more women who are more talented and now there's more women on my roster. Wow. So you just go out of your way. That's all you have to do is go out of your way to go meet more people. And you meet more people. It's fun. It's not a hard thing to do. It's not difficult. That's um, awesome. It's a fun thing to do. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. I guess tonight after this we just go out off our way to actually meet new people on the train, go to Hampton, go somewhere else as well. <laughs> yeah, you have to go to Hampton, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I guess with that I might just call it a night. Um, so yeah. thanks everyone for listening and a big thanks to Simon for sharing his insight. Simon, have you got any last shout out? Yeah, if you're interested in the work that I do and fear in particular, I've got a book called Sick Little Puppies out. It's a short story horror collection that I've written with a longtime collaborator, Stefan Taylor. That's available on Amazon and if you hear this before September we've got a show coming out at Fringe Festival Melbourne Fringe Festival in September called Night Terrors and it's all horror stories by and about women performed by a woman so it's intimate one woman show of classic literary horror stories but all told about women in the classic most scary sort of scenarios you can think of so that'll be a lot of fun well that's great I'll be sure to buy the book and actually check out your film thank you great thank you good night